please stand in body or in spirit for the reading of the gospel. From Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. I think preaching the transfiguration story is fun. I mean, it's so weird. The ghost-like emergence of Moses and Elijah, a glowing Jesus and a bumbling Peter, what's not to like? This story comes up in the lectionary every year, which means I've preached it seven or eight times by now, and I never really tire of unraveling its mysteries. I like the challenge of the weirder stories. I always have, and I like the way the strangeness of God sort of loosens our certainties and calls us to take a second look and a third one and a fourth. But one part of this story I tend to avoid, however, is this business about not telling anyone. It says Jesus, quote, ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Where's the fun in that? Why was Jesus being stingy with the strange stuff? Why keep the magical mountaintop moment to themselves? Wasn't this confirmation that Christ was for real? Wasn't this proof? You know, I've had my own mountaintop moments. Nothing as fantastic as prophets returned from the dead or a voice from heaven or a shiny face to Jesus. But I've had them. Maybe you have too. Moments of startling clarity, for example, or moments of unexpected grace. Moments where you knew something true about yourself or about God. Moments where you were inspired or awakened, filled with awe or filled with hope. Moments in which your faith mattered deeply to you. Or moments where you were captivated, overshadowed by a sense of urgency to do what was right regardless of the cost. Mountaintops. These moments come to us in all sorts of ways, from showy to subtle, and for many of us, they are rare, too rare. And later, we may doubt they ever really happened. When the mountaintop moments do happen, like Peter, we might like to build some sort of tent around it, keep the experience safe and intact, 
but usually the experience is fleeting. Within days or minutes or seconds, we are headed back down the mountain, where the world, back down the mountain into a world in which people suffer inexplicably and grievously, a world where tyrants rule and children get cancer, where hearts break and far too often injustice prevails. When the disciples encountered Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the mountain, it wasn't really a moment for the masses. It was a moment for them, because, frankly, they were about to need it. Once they got off that mountain, the journey with Jesus was going to get really, really tough. They would see him threatened, see him betrayed, see him arrested, see him sentenced. They would fear for his life. They would fear for their own. They would stare defeat right in the face. What would they have to hold on to in those moments of shock and terror? Preacher and scholar Caroline Lewis says post-transfiguration is not for the faint of heart. Once the disciples descended from the mountain, they found themselves in the valley of the shadow of death. And really, those brief mountaintop moments were hardly enough. Not enough for the disciples, not enough for us. Once we're back in the valley, we scarcely even remember the mountain. And when we do remember, if we don't brush it off as some fanciful figment of our imagination, we long for it ferociously, wonder why we can't have it back. Where is God's voice now when we need it most and the world is going to pot? Why is it so hard to hold on to the experience of transcendence? I think perhaps the point of the transfiguration moment wasn't to give the disciples something to hold on to when times got hard. The point was to change them in some irrevocable way such that even at their most despairing, they could never go back to the time before they knew Jesus in this way. I remember distinctly the most significant spiritual awakening of my life that happened over the course of a private retreat. I had a little red journal that I carried with me recording everything of importance. And on the day I was to board the plane to return back home, I felt a bit of panic knowing these gift days were ending and real life was about to crash back in. Would I lose it all? All that I had learned, all the self-discovery, all the renewal, the awakening, the magic? Would I forget all about it? But the line that fell out of me and onto the journal page was this. I'm scared to go back, but I've left footprints all over my inner self. I've blazed a new trail. It was like I had this sense that something irreversible had happened. And through the years, I have found that to be true. Because I've faced some really low lows since that time. I've doubted everything and lost my hope. I've been exhausted, overcome by sorrow, and stuck in despair. And yet, at the same time, I have never regressed to the girl I was before that moment. It's like you can't unknow what you know or unsee what you've seen. It leaves its mark, and to be forever changed does not mean that the sailing is smooth or that you don't make mistakes or pick up your old bad habits from time to time. 
But even in your lowest low, you are different than you were before. You may not even realize it, but the moment of transfiguration stays with you even when your conscious mind has forgotten all about it. I think maybe Jesus didn't need to order the disciples not to tell. Because things would get so hard, so fast, they would forget it had even happened. They'd become stuck in the horror of the present. But after the resurrection, the memories would come back. And they would realize, maybe only in hindsight, that God was with them even as they faced crucifixion. Friends, I do not think this story is so extraordinary or different from our own story. Because the days have grown dark and merciless. Christ, it seems, is being sacrificed over and over. God's name is being used in vain as people claim to be Christians and in the same breath harm their brother, assault their sister. Refugees flee violence and war. Men, women, and children seeking asylum and our own government turns them away. We live in a day where cruelty is made into policy and in far too many pockets of our country, Christianity has become synonymous with racism and homophobia. Greed is God and truth is whatever the man in power says it is. Our story is not unlike the story of the disciples who feared, who worried, who grieved as the real Jesus was captured by the authorities and taken away from them in danger of being slaughtered. Lent is not just an ancient story we tell ourselves, it's the story we are in, a reality we are in. Every day Christ's values are in danger, every day God's children are in danger of poverty, of deportation, of harassment, of slander, every day the cross looms close. And for us, it's not about remembering the mountaintop so much as it is about knowing that we have already been changed. And come what may, we will live as those who know Christ as love. We cannot go backwards from this knowing. We may have our doubts that love will win, that good will ever resurrect, but in some ways the uncertainty of victory doesn't matter. Because even if love lost, we've already chosen a side. We've already been converted to the way of love. And even the threat of death and obliteration can't stop us from loving. My friend Kathy once told me that even though people threaten her that she is going to hell because she is gay, it doesn't bother her because even hell, she says, can't take away her love. She'd just go down there and keep on loving. Hell can't stop her from loving. That, my friends, is what it means to be transfigured. As Christians, we walk in the hope of resurrection, but there are days and years and seasons where it looks like death, all valley walking in shadows. But even then, we fear no evil. Because to be touched by love is greater than hope. How do our scriptures put it? These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 
the mountaintop memory might not sustain us in the way we expected, and we might not be able to get back to it, but it's now in the DNA of who we have become, and there's no erasing it. I don't think it would have done a lick of good for Jesus to say to the disciples as they came down from the mountain, okay, now you're able to get through hell and back. No, they would have run away screaming. He just said, Keep this moment to yourselves. And then he led the way through hell. Through hell and, spoiler alert, back. But when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't always know there's a back. You think hell might be forever. You can't always hang on to hope. But the love you have learned hangs on to you, because it's a part of you. To meet love on the mountain doesn't just inspire you. It changes you, so that even after the mountain, when your memories of it have faded and all hope seems lost, still you find yourself choosing to love the oppressed ones whom God loves. You've seen the world the way God sees it, and you can't unsee. Church of God, we have been transfigured. There is no other way but down the mountain into the valley, taking our changed selves with us. And come what may, let us walk in the way of love. Amen.